When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You ask, what is the factor that we think is bearing, most importantly, in the bond market now? And I, I would say that the, the unconstrained, ill-disciplined emission of debt by the United States Treasury, and of course, prior to that, by the Congress. On Wealth Track, 40 years of market perspective from James Grant, what history tells us about today's markets. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. History matters, as does historical perspective. Today's guest is rich in both. He is James Grant, financial thought leader, historian, founder, and editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a twice-monthly journal he launched in 1983 40 years ago this year. As he wrote at the time, its stated editorial mission was to keep its readers abreast of the things that cause rates to rise and fall and of the forces that tilt the world toward inflation and deflation. When Grant launched his journal in 1983, 30-year treasuries yielded 12%. They are now around 5%. Three-month treasury bills were 9%. They are now above 5%. Paul Volcker was chairman of the Federal Reserve, and the greatest bull market in bonds was beginning. Interest rates rise was the headline of the page one article of the first edition of Grant's. As he explained in his 40th anniversary anthology, rates, in fact, continued to rise for the next six months before beginning the epical decline that would carry them in not quite four decades to lows unseen in four millennia. I asked Grant to give us his headline today. Uh, well, we go in for tradition around here at Consuelo, and I, I would stick with what worked. <laughs> but I, you know, your rates proceeded to, uh, of course, famously fall. Uh, but, but I would also observe, Consuelo, even then, even then, we didn't go in for uh, uh, a flamboyance in our journalism. I mean, nice interest rates rise. How is that for non-sensational It's very succinct, exactly. And actually, it, it turns out that worked for about six months, right? And then, then, then they declined. So the, the greatest uh, bull market in bonds in 40 years, that's how you started your career at Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Um, so uh, any seismic shifts now after the great decline in interest rates, are we at an inflection point now of equal proportion? I think so. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the, the great bull market in bonds actually began in 1981. So that right. was uh, two it years did. earlier. Yeah. And um, uh, it seems that it ended in 2021 at uh, rates that were uh, some of the lowest in the recorded history of Venezuela of interest rates, which, as you know, uh, is 4,000 year story, and Sidney Homer and Dick Silla have recorded it. So nothing like the rates seen in 2020 and 21 had ever been recorded, such as you know, 16 or so trillion of securities worldwide uh, price to yield less than nothing. That was a, a first 
than four millennia. So um, perhaps it's not so surprising that the snap back from the all-time lowest heretofore unimaginable mm -hmm. rates should, the, should be uh, rather a, a light show of speed and power and uh, indeed of financial violence. So here we are. So Jim, does the Fed get any credit for this turnaround and this, you know, quote, normalization of interest rates? It, it was the agent of the suppression of the preceded it. So um, uh, as for cause and effect, uh, you know, the, uh, the, inf the inflation that the Fed belatedly recognized was in progress for many months before it stopped doing its so-called quantitative easing and began to move rates off zero. So I guess it, it, was, it wasn't the agent of the change, but it uh, certainly has played a part. You're keeping readers abreast of things that cause rates to rise and fall. What are you telling them about the causes of these interest rate rises at this point? You know, there was a, a feature of the bond market that is uh, unusual for in finance, and that is that uh, interest rates have at least tended over the past 150 years to uh, rise and fall at generation length intervals. So, uh, you know, kind of 35 years down at the end of the Civil War to 1900, then up for 20 years, then uh, down until 1946. And then uh, famously up from 1946 to 81, that was the cycle that took us from two and a quarter percent to 15 percent uh, in the early Reagan years. Mm -hmm. And then 40 years, 40 years of decline. So um, on historical form, there's nothing scientific about this. This is merely pattern recognition or um, something of the kind. So uh, if the historical form holds, the greatest bond bull market might be succeeded by a bear market of some duration and power. And what is unusual about the, the beginnings of this, uh, let's say it's a bear market, you know, we're all guessing about these things. What is unusual is, is, the, is the sheer raw speed and power of it. To, in the preceding two bear markets of bonds, 1900 to 20 and 1946 to 81, the, the first 10 years took rates up only one percentage point, 10 basis points a year for 10 wow. years. And the, so this, this time it's been you know, like zero to 60 in four and a half seconds. Right. So, so that's, that's one thing to, to note, that uh, perhaps the way to frame this rise in rates is to uh, place it in the, uh, the hypothetical context or the context of a hypothetical, long-trending bear market. And it's not going to be five percentage points every two years for the next four years. That, that would be rather impossible. But uh, we might consider the possibility of a long-trending... So people say, you know, Higher for longer. Yes. And we, we are saying at Grants, um, you know, uh, tentatively, higher for a much, 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 <laughs> much longer. That's, so that's, that's, that's one thought about the current day, uh, current state of things. A second is that there is a nice silver lining in this for a real saver, mm -hmm. which is that, um, you know, if you are, are a bondholder, you get two coupon payments a year, and when rates are falling, you invest that interest income at ever lower rates, right? So if you bought a bond that yielded 12% in the 1980s, you were reinvesting the coupons at, at 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, right. at length, just about at nothing. Mm -hmm. So now 
um, you are investing, at least prospectively, investing at ever higher rates. So the phenomenon of interest on interest is in your favor. And uh, there's a, a kind of a, a Bible of fixed income called Inside the Yield Book. And that Bible tells us that um, uh, interest on interest can account for as much as one half of the total return on a bond over the course of many years. So um, it's no small thing that, uh, that savers now can look for real, not necessarily inflation adjusted real, but like genuine, like non-fake um, <laughs> um, uh, rates of return. You walk by a bank for years and years and would say, the best rates in town, point zero zero three percent per compounded. You know? And now you walk by, my goodness, there are whole numbers to the left of the decimal point. So it's quite striking. But for bond investors, as you said, if, if we're if we're going to be in a in a bear market, so that's great if you hold those until maturity. But if you want to sell yes. them before maturity, uh, you're to dealing be, with yeah. losses, right? To be sure, and can, yeah. can considerable ones. If you were uh, unlucky enough to have bought bonds in the uh, in the wild and when they the money growing on a tree phase of our finances in 2020 and 21, when everything, we had no interest rates, everything was, money was free. If you bought those long dated bonds, you were looking at a loss of as much as one half of your principal now. Some of these uh, 30 year bonds that came to market at one and a quarter percent or the 100 year bonds that came out of Europe yielding two, those things are down, as they say in the stock market, it's down a half. Oh, mm -hmm. down a half? Yeah, down 50%. <laughs> That takes a lot of silver lining to compensate for that. The higher for longer, the the way the bond, some bond managers are thinking are, are that the higher for longer is going to be kind of flat, but higher at these levels, which is not going to be as dangerous for bond investors as it would be were they to you know continuously ratchet higher. It sounds eminently reasonable. And it is wholly unreasonable to expect that the rate of rise of the past 18 months would be sustained. It's arithmetic, you know, so interest rates don't, go to the, don't grow to the sky either. But you know, there's, um, I think all this interest rate drama is quite humbling. Uh, there's a commentator in the Financial Times' comment section on a bond story recently, and the guy said, uh, you know, this is the deepest market in the world, uh, populated by the most sophisticated analysts in the world with the most powerful computers in the world, and, and nobody knows nothing, as it were. You have to approach this with great humility. And you know, it's, it's also, I think, useful to recall that during the 1970s, uh, inflation came upon us in three distinct waves. And uh, at the uh, trough of each successive wave, there was always someone, some person of, of great prominence to say, well, glad that's over. <laughs> but it wasn't over. Paul Volcker said that in 1971. He said, yes, things are looking much better now. No, no, they might have been looking better. Right. But it would be 10 years before Volcker himself, uh, through the most brutal uh, monetary policy, uh, helped to affect an improvement. So, uh, you know, about the future, we are all equally ignorant. The difference is that some of us know we know nothing and the others pretend. Right. I remember in a previous Wealth Track appearance, you said that you wish that uh, the Fed chairmans had would adopt some of the humility um, that you're talking about. Is uh, basically the future is unknowable. And uh, what is wanted, I think, is circumspection and common sense and the dogmatism 
that was behind the assertion that inflation is transitory. How could they know that inflation was going to be transitory? We have to get away from this uh, PhD standard, the improvisation of our monetary masters who, having earned a doctorate in economics, they, they think they know things they cannot possibly know. That will conclude my sermon, Consuelo, on that. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are dealing with the reality that the Fed is run by PhDs and that, if, as you eloquently put it uh, in some issues of grants, that the gold standard has been replaced uh, by the PhD standard and it's a, a retrogression, not an evolution of the Fed. And, but that's the reality. You're, you're tracking the forces of inflation and deflation yeah. and their impact in the market. So, so what are the forces that you're tracking right now that are or could have significant impact on the market? You know, an interesting one, Consuelo, is, um, is the public credit. It's mm -hmm. a kind of an antique phrase from Alexander Hamilton wrote a famous essay on the, on the public credit, I think, in 1791. Uh, but the public credit, the phrase has gone out of business. Uh, people, you know, during the modern monetary theory age, which seemed to last forever to those of us who thought it was a bunch of hooey, uh, people have thought that, well, um, the uh, government can borrow all it likes because the dollar is the uh, Coca-Cola of world monetary brands, right? What is notable now is, is that people have come around to observing that the supply of government securities might be greater than the demand for government securities at prevailing rates of interest. That is, the public credit is a thing, as mm -hmm. the young folks say, and that the thing might be out of balance. So you ask, what is the, what is the factor that we think is bearing, um, most importantly, in the bond market now? And I, I would say that the, the unconstrained, ill-disciplined emission of debt by mm -hmm. the United States Treasury, and of course, prior to that by the Congress. That's, that appears to be the thing. You know, people, people invoked fears of, uh, of the public debt uh, during the last phase of the bond bear market. I remember I myself, Consuelo, wrote, <laughs> wrote pieces saying, balance the budget. This is 1981 when right. it was a big, de big deal when the gross public debt passed a trillion. Under Reagan, the, uh, the public debt tripled, but interest rates were chopped in half, sawed in half. So, so the, so the uh, connection between the public credit and rates is by no means obvious or easily mm -hmm. um, decipherable at every juncture, but uh, uh, there will come a time, suppose, you know, apparently, when the world will have too many of these pieces of paper. Are you seeing uh, evidence of that? Yeah, well, you can, you can see it uh, in, in most, I guess, most obviously in the downgrades of the, of the Treasury's credit by S&P and 10 years ago, I guess, and, and, uh, and Fitch more recently. But what did that do? I mean, what, what, what was the real world in, impact in, in the market? It plants the seed in the minds of the market that uh, there are limits what? to the Treasury's capacity to service its debts in good money. Mm -hmm. Now, the Treasury can, of course, call upon the Fed to uh, uh, print uh, what these call shin plasters, during the Revolutionary <laughs> War, I guess. So they say, um, and that could be done, uh, but the, if the question is uh, servicing debt in good money, that, that certainly suggests constraints. So we first have to acknowledge there are constraints. Now, the, the entire setup in American public finance since 1981 has been, uh, if you can imagine a, 
the World Tennis Association, if there's such a thing, um, deciding that we're going to do away with baselines. We'll get rid of the baselines. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get rid of the sidelines. And at length, we'll take down the net. And everyone can play without these irksome and bothersome <laughs> constraints that interrupted so many games of tennis. Right. So uh, 1971, the, the, the net came down. Actually, that's the first thing. The gold standard. What remained of the gold standard ended. And then you, know, you, you go on uh, the next uh, 50 years or so, and all these, uh, these kind of New Year's resolutions for the fiscal side, you know, the, the re continual resolutions and the, uh, and the OMB and the CBO and the documents they emit and all the editorializing. All. So uh, all this stuff is, is, again, reminds me of a, of a rather barren tennis court. And perhaps what is required is the <laughs> getting some guy to repaint the baseline to start with and maybe a uh, we, don't have to, we don't have to bring the net back at its exact height in 71. We might think about restoring, figuratively speaking, some kind of net. So I, I think what is wanted is a helpful kind of constriction mm -hmm. on our emission of dollar bills and debts denominated insane. However, the chances of that <laughs> happening at Sham are kind of slim to none. <laughs> Um, and so as investors, what do we do with this overhang? What is it, 50% of the government debt is three years or under maturity? So they're going to be rolling over at, you know, much, much higher rates. Um, what do we do as investors? I'm not strictly in the uh, do this and do that line of work. I mean, but, um, but your question is well taken. We have to get up in the morning and do something. We can't just philosophize about it, as I've been doing. So what do you do? So you have to, I think you have to prepare yourself for the for, uh, arm with facts that we see. So one of the facts we see is that the world is, that people are shooting each other. Mm -hmm. And war, I guess, just behind grand opera is the most expensive human endeavor. And uh, so uh, we're looking at tens of billions of dollars in respective aid to Ukraine and Israel. We are looking I would say it's obvious that we're looking at a much bigger defense budget. This on top of, of other federal spending that it seems not to be reduced to compensate for the defense outlays. Right. So I would say that the, um, the pressure uh, on the supply side of the bond market will be persistent. I would say that the uh, demands from the private sector, you know, credit is part of the sinews of war, pervert, you know, famously, but it's also a sinew of peace. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're going to have a, a terrific demand for credit in the in the market. You know, we're not going to abstract now from recessions. So I think the pressure on rates will be persistent. And I think that uh, the credit problems will surface before very long. They're, they're kind of nosing their way to the surface. But by credit is the promise to pay money, of course. What makes five percent dangerous today is the preceding 10 years of zero percent. So all of these uh, fragile financial structures now revealed right. as fra fragile are going to be tested by rising interest rates. So there'll be credit troubles that we have not seen for a while. Uh, there will be pressure on the consumer. Mortgage applications mm -hmm. are down for in a big way. You no know, credit card debt is up, up. Defaults are up. There's a saying, a funny saying years ago. It's a world of sin and sorrow. Well, it's. Um, <laughs> It is a world of great things as well, but but the sin and sorrow portion of the cycle, I think, will be uh, rather um, uh, rather more important than it was, say, during the money grows on trees era of the cycle, which incited and facilitated all these venture capital promotions, all the private equity uh, promotion 
So it'll be more interesting in so many ways. I mean, I, I think Consuelo, one financial journalist to another, it's going to be good copy. What's wrong with that? <laughs> so, but as, as for investors, I think we, we ought to be liquid. I think uh, nice and liquid to take advantage of opportunities that will be presented to us by Mr. Market, who will certainly overreact to the downside as he has overreacted to the upside in so many ways over the course of so many years. At some point, it will be a time of terrific opportunity when all of these forces are realized in the market and that we see serious problems emerging, right? And that's when yes. it will be good to have cash. Yeah, well, there are opportunities now. I mean, the, uh, for example, you can, um, we've been looking at small cap stocks and they mm -hmm. are at record uh, discounts. Uh, in the small cap world, there are bargains surfacing and the, and the, the spread in valuation uh, between the, uh, and, and market cap between the, the small size companies and the big ones, you know, the, the magnificent seven so-called, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. at near record levels and small caps have had the roughest ride in years and years and years. So there, all of the uh, distortions that were evident during the uh, the time of very, very low rates and very heavy promotional, speculative promotional activity. All, the, all these distortions are, are, are coming to the fore and are being resolved. You see the occasional bankruptcy of a venture capital operation now and then. And so uh, I, don't know, that's, it's, I think things are shaking out and mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of good because you, the capitalism needs failure to re-guide and redirect investment. It needs, that's why it needs market interest rates and we have not had market interest rate. We've had a regime of price control with the attendant consequences that are always obvious in price control. Jim, you just had your 40th anniversary investment conference for grants, and uh, you had a, a, an array of really the smart money, really smart investors, very thoughtful investors there, you know, okay. Michael Hartnett from B, from B of A and David Einhorn from Greenlight Capital and a number of other uh, luminaries from the investment world. So what were some of the highlights? What, what were some of the ideas that were coming out of that conference that y you could share with us? Here's one that's not yet on the front pages, but uh, may well be in coming mm -hmm. weeks, and that is the, the monetary tension in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, oh, you know, the Japanese okay. have... Uh, suppressed rates forever and ever, and uh, their last uh, holdout of negative rates, rates below uh, zero. And the whole thought process in the Japanese uh, uh, monetary world was, uh, well, we will continue to suppress rates and print money, but it's never gonna work, so we're gonna, it's never gonna work, meaning that there will never be inflation, so we'll right. keep on doing it. But as David Dredge, one of our speakers says, I always ask myself, what if it works? So, so, so the um, uh, Japanese uh, rate of inflation is rising, has risen, and the Japanese uh, central bank, the Bank of Japan, is getting a little bit worried about what will it do if inflation gets away from it and interest rates are uh, higher than zero because the market has been insisting on something more than zero. But you know, when you think about the, uh, the size of the Japanese economy, the size of its bond market, and the um, presence of Japanese investors in other markets hoping to get a yield greater than zero, uh, the possibilities for upset and turmoil are considerable if the Japanese lose control of their interest rate peg. Mm -hmm. So David calls this, uh, this peg in Japan, meaning the suppression of rates at zero, he calls it the most dangerous peg in the world. 
So that's, that's something to keep our eyes on. It might be a source of, uh, of turmoil and upset in the bond market, not originating in Washington, D.C. Jim, what's your one recommendation for a long-term diversified portfolio? You know, compound interest and the promise of compounding money, of, of interest on interest, this is now has returned as an investment proposition. And it's, a, it's, been, it's been gone forever, seemingly, but it's back now. It's a very good thing for savers. Jim Grant, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack and congratulations on the 40th anniversary of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Thank you, Consuela. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point comes to us courtesy of Jim Grant and a recent issue of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. It is take advantage of the interest on interest. Interest on interest is the returns from reinvesting semi-annual coupon income from bonds. Now that bonds are actually paying decent interest rates, the power of reinvesting them, compounding their returns, can add up. Grants quoted the 1972 fixed income classic inside the yield book, which stated for most long-term bonds, the interest on interest feature is a surprisingly important part of the total compounded return to the bondholders, typically over half. Now, to update that, Grant interviewed Loomis Sales' Dan Fuss, a great bond investor and regular WealthTrack guest in our early years. Fuss cautioned, you don't want to extend your maturities too far. And secondarily, you really want to be very, very careful on the credit risk side. In the nick of time, Morningstar recently issued a list of gold-rated bond funds and ETFs, which included some high-quality short and intermediate-term ones. Among them are Baird Short-Term Bond, Schwab Short-Term U.S. Treasury ETF, and the Vanguard Short-Term Treasury ETF. As the title of a recent grants issue put it, there are bear bond market silver linings. Next week in part two of our grant interview, he shares some important lessons learned from 40 years of covering the financial markets. In this week's extra feature, Grant shares the story behind the creation of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. It began with a dinner with his wife at the famed Oak Room in the Plaza Hotel. For those of you so inclined, please follow us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. Thanks for spending some of your precious time with us. Have a lovely weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.